everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. 1999 has been a very popular year to discuss on Attendance Bias, and for some reason, July of 1999 has been chosen seven separate times by various guests. With today's episode, we are at eight, and we are nearly through the first two weeks of that tour, which is becoming legendary, at least for me and my various guests. Today's guest, speaking of which, is Brad G., who chose to discuss Fish's show from July 4th, 1999 at the Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta. July 4th is always an extra fun show, and today's is no exception. But what made today's conversation extra fun was Brad's preparation and enthusiasm. Brad clearly loves this show, but he really loves talking about it and spreading the good word about July 4th, 99. Not only that, but he's an avid listener of this podcast, so he knew my common opinions, and he even went so far as to quote former guests from prior episodes. Although Brad and I had never met in person, this conversation felt familiar and I was enthusiastic for hours after we ended the recording. I hope that that energy comes through over the next hour or so. So let's join Brad to talk about the rumors surrounding the millennium, vultures, and so much more as we discuss July 4th, 1999 at the Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta, Georgia. Brad, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks for having me. I've had 23 years to listen to this show and three weeks to prepare for this podcast, and I'm somehow <laughs> not quite ready yet, but we're going to, the, the show must go on, right? Yeah, always. I'll do my best to fill in those gaps. I wasn't there, but I'll just add color commentary. Brad chose July 4th, 1999 at Lakewood Amphitheater. And for all intents and purposes, Brad, is this just Alpharetta or Lakewood is a completely different uh, venue? You know what? I've got no idea what Alpharetta is. I haven't had much contact with fish in like 15 years. And I'm generally aware that there's someplace called Alpharetta and they've done some good shows there, but I don't know if that's the same thing as Lakewood. All right. Well, we'll find out a little bit more about Lakewood a little bit later, but let's find out more about you as a fan with the lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. Brad, when was your first fish show and what do you remember of it? My first fish show was 8997 Alpine 97 and uh at the time all of my friends at high school and college all listened to fish but I really didn't and I had a girlfriend who eventually dragged me to my first show and I wish I could tell you all these great things I remember about it but some of my friends ate something that didn't agree with them in the parking lot and they were not having a good time and I got totally distracted I basically missed the entire show I stood up in the middle of Wilson, and I kind of experienced 40,000 people doing the Wilson chant, and I knew there was something really cool going on, but I didn't really get to experience that that first show. But my next show winds up being Champagne 97, 11-19-97, which I loved. My next four shows were the Island Tour, capped off with a show you did already, 4-5-98. That is my number one attendance bias show of all time. Those five shows, Champagne and then the Island Tour, on any list, those are five of the best shows of all time. And so, like, what choice did I have after that but just <laughs> devote my life to fish? It's not my fault, man. It's not my fault. What? Uh, how old were you uh, before your first show at Alpine? Like, what were you listening to the band? I know you said your girlfriend dragged you along. Uh, where were you in your life a little bit around then? 
I had just finished my freshman year of college. Uh, if you got my transcripts and counted the credits, you would maybe nitpick with me saying I finished my freshman year of college. <laughs> but honestly, all of my high school friends and all of my college friends listened to Fish, and it was just always on in every car we drove around in and every basement we sat around in. And it just, I don't know, it never quite hit me. I never once put Fish on or wanted to listen to it on my own. And uh, something about going to a concert and and getting the experience of of the whole show not just the music uh certainly caught my interest yeah well what was your most recent show and what did you think of it my last show was coventry and i didn't like it um <laughs> you know everyone who has said that coventry was bad was correct and i don't have much to add the the truth of the matter is you know, selfishly, I probably needed it to be bad. I was kind of looking to close a chapter of my life and Coventry going the way it went kind of make it really easy to kind of turn my back on fish. And uh, and so I did. I didn't have much to do with fish until very recently. Something you and I have in common. We both got married this past summer. Congratulations, Brian. Thank you. And to you. And And my wedding day wound up being three days away from the 25th anniversary of my first show. So I was sitting there at this moment where I've just met my, my wife, I'm getting married, I'm starting a new chapter, and I'm looking at this 25-year, this perfect 25-year period. And uh, something about that made me really nostalgic for Fish, remembering all those dates and you know, cl closing this door, opening a new door, maybe something about that made me more open to going back and exploring Fish again. And I spent like the last year really getting back into fish and finding out their fish podcasts and fish message boards. And there, there's a conversation that exists about fish that doesn't exist on fantasy tour. And that's really exciting. And so this has been a really cool year. And and believe it or not, your podcast here has played a big role in it. So it's it's really like recaptured some excitement for me. And so thank you, man. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you for saying that. I didn't plan to ask this, but hearing you speak about how you've kind of rediscovered or at least got back into fish, reopened that door. Is there anything, any sort of anything that you've rediscovered or really appreciated now that maybe you didn't at the time that you were active on the scene? I was actually going to talk about this later. It's funny you bring it up. Just in the in the process of getting ready for this podcast, I kind of come to the realization that you know, fish are artists and that these shows are pieces of art that we consider over time. And, and there was something that I never really thought about until just the last couple of weeks. And I've really come to this realization that, um, you know, we're some kind of like art admirers and these are artists and we've been kind of judging their works throughout the years. And that was something I, that I didn't think about until very, very recently. Aside from fish, which band or artist do you think that you've seen live the most? Uh, Beck, I saw Beck four times and, um, he's a, he's awesome. He puts on a fantastic show. If you ever get a chance to, to see Beck, I highly recommend it. I've only seen him once. It was years ago. Now, I think it was at Bonnaroo 2006. And when he played his show, his band was in the back of the stage and in the front of the stage, or maybe it was off to the side. There were four puppeteers and each puppeteer had a puppet that looked exactly like a member of the band. And they were miming. So the cameras that were on the big screens at Bonnaroo were focusing on the puppet show. So if you couldn't see the band, if you were all the way in the back of the field, you were watching a cam a puppet show uh, play this amazing live music of Beck's. 
that that sounds so like Beck because like when when Beck gets him on stage, he doesn't see himself as a songwriter or a musician. He sees himself as an entertainer. He's there to entertain the crowd. That sounds like the most Beck thing possible. I totally see that, man. Yeah, he's very much a performer. Absolutely, right. and his That's band right. is always top notch. And and they're always putting on a show. They've always got theatrics and they're always moving around. It's super high energy. I highly recommend it. Yeah. If you could choose a venue for fish to play, regardless of its size or its location, and you would automatically have a ticket, where would you have them play? I'd love to see a show at Bomb Factory. It's got the name Bomb Factory. I'd love to see. I, I don't know how big it is. It's probably knocked down by, I assume it was like 1,500 people, 2,500 people. That would be really cool to see fish in a tiny little place like that called the Bomb Factory. That's my spot. <laughs> And finally, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? Believe it or not, I don't really have anything. I I, I listen to all these shows. Everyone's talking about their, their naked guy. My one naked guy wasn't even that interesting or crazy. He just <laughs> didn't have pants on. He was um, just naked. I, I believe it or not. I, yeah, aside from the exposed penis, he was a really normal looking dude. Um, so I, I got nothing crazy. I'm just a little scared that sometimes someone's going to come on here and tell a story about me. So <laughs> good point. I'm maybe on the I'm maybe on I'm on the other side of this equation. Well, you chose July fourth, nineteen ninety nine, at Lakewood, a show from nineteen ninety nine. We've gone over, and you said you listen to the podcast frequently. We've gone over the summer of nineteen ninety nine, and almost specifically this week. Of 1999, like the first two weeks of July, I feel like now I'm an expert. I know everything I'll ever need to know, except what it was actually like to be there. That's the only thing that's missing. I'll talk a little bit about it, but I want to hear really your impressions because I don't want to go over repeating myself for listeners. Uh, but overall, the the broad strokes, Fish played 20 shows in the summer of 1999. This show, July 4th, was the fourth show of the tour. So we're still in the beginning of it. And there were two nights off afterward. They resumed the tour in the Mid-Atlantic in Charlotte, Virginia Beach, and Merriweather. It would go north for this legendary week that I think almost all of these shows have been spoken about on the podcast. Uh, Camden, Holmdel, and Great Woods. Fish switched up their positions on stage. It was the first time that they looked more like a traditional rock band with Fishman in the back and the guitar and keyboard. I'm sorry, the guitar and bass up front. And also, you and I will probably get into this later, Trey added a small keyboard setup. I originally thought, and I wrote this in my notes, that you could hear it in every show from that summer. You took exception to that. What were you thinking when I when you read those notes? I thought, I thought oh my God, uh, I've lost my mind. How did I not know, <laughs> know that there was a keyboard at every single show that I was at when I didn't remember it happening at one time? Uh, but I did go back and check the tapes. There's there's really only one show worth watching that's recorded from this tour. That's the uh, Columbus, Ohio show. And Trey very clearly plays the keyboard. I wouldn't say he's playing the keyboard. He's doing something with the guitar loops, with something that's like a keyboard. I'm not a musician. I don't know what's going on. But uh, he's doing something with a keyboard type thing that's not quite playing the keyboard. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, and I, I dug a little bit deeper. I agree. It's It's very... It's a synthesizer, right? It's it's very generous to call it a keyboard because it doesn't have that traditional keyboard sound like you would expect from Page's rig or something. But it is, for all intents and purposes, it is a keyboard, although it's a synth. And it doesn't sound like it. If you're not watching Trey the whole time, you can't tell just by your ears, at least I can't, when he's doing it, when he's using it. 
I did a little bit more research when you told me that, and it turns out that it was much, much more common to see Trey on the keyboards during the fall tour of 99 and then the December tour of 99 that he would kind of try and step back from leading the band with his guitar and kind of let an airy ambience creep in, mostly during jams like Tweezer, for example. The Fish.net setlist might say Trey on keys. And that was real hit or miss to my ears. I agree. And during one of my first interviews of this podcast, a friend of mine chose a show at Merriweather Post, which was right before this Atlanta show. It was a running joke about how no one considers 1999 their favorite year. But now I think if I did my math right, there have been nine episodes, maybe 10, about full shows or jams from 99. And I think six of them are from this just this summer. It's really interesting how when I get to know more people of my age cohort, that 1999 is much more popular than I understood at the time, or even for 10 years after. I always thought 1999 was underrated, but I don't think it is anymore. It's worth talking about your show's relationship to this tour, because I've kind of followed it after the fact, listening to all of these shows. And, uh, uh, you know, you ex- you introduced me to your buddies over at the Osiris podcast, and they have a very similar start to their conversation about summer 99, where they very clearly say, I barely listened to this tour before. And you on your very first episode about this tour said, I've never really listened to this tour before. So it seems like this was maybe overlooked and underappreciated for a little bit. Forget about ranking, who cares about what was ranked where. But it does seem like this maybe got overlooked, lost in the shuffle of Big Cypress and some other things. And and maybe people didn't pay attention to it. And, and thanks to you and those guys, maybe more people are paying paying attention to it now. I think that's a big part of it, what you said about leading up to Big Cypress. Because when you talk about 1999 to any Fish fan, that's got to be the first words that come to mind, rightfully so. We forget sometimes that there is almost an entire year's worth of shows leading up to this enormous festival that deserve analysis or at least attention, that there's so much to it. It's not just a festival. It's a culmination, Big Cypress was. And it all started in the summer. That, that a lot of people talk about these shows in their relationship to Big Cypress, as opposed to just, hey, this was a show that existed on its own, or this is a tour that existed on, on its own. Yeah, and what do you think about this week, or at least this month of July 99, that is so compelling, that fish caught fire? Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, you could, you could just say as well, I have no idea, because that's my answer. <laughs> but what do you so, think it was July 99? So I spent... 20 years loving this tour and and this was really the only tour i went on i caught the last 18 i i started in atlanta and caught the last 18 shows of this tour the only tour i did and i just always assumed that i had a blast and everyone who went on summer tour 97 or summer tour 98 had the same exact amount of fun just seeing different shows at different venues but listening to your show and listening to all these people talk about it i'm starting to think maybe just maybe there was something in the air. There was an energy at these shows where people are like 5% more attendance biased than they would have been at, at another tour. Not that the music is better. Not we had a better time. Just something in our brain likes it a little bit more. Uh, I think we've talked about it before. There were certainly some different things going around in the parking lot in summer 99 in comparison to previous years that might make people like things a little bit more and might make people think things picked in and exactly the way they're supposed to be there there's certainly some of that going on in summer 99 but there was 
there was a real palpable, tangible energy in this tour, not an intangible thing, a real, a, a real energy. And I've got a perfect uh, anecdote for that. Uh, your guest for that Great Wood show, the, the 12th of July. Yeah, it's uh, I'm not going to name yeah. his name. I don't want to. I will. <laughs> I wasn't going to try to get him in trouble with his corporate o- overlords. But I got a quote for him from this show talking about when they open with foreplay long time. This is a quote. Not only is that as happy as I could be at a fish show, that moment is as happy as I'm capable of being in life, period. That sounds like, a, like an attendance bias moment to me. And what he's talking about there isn't what happened on stage. He puts it in the perfect context of the crowd was going crazy at this show. Uh, They hadn't played Great Woods in four years. The energy on this tour had been building from Atlanta all the way up the coast through Camden. Uh, Fish has a day off to plan what they're going to do for this show. You can actually hear Trey talk about it. Uh, They went out of their way to really come up with this idea for this specific show. And the crowd was going nuts uh leading up to to fish getting on stage and the first four minutes of the song are goosebump moments that that go up there with anything in my fish career i put this tied at the very very top after midnight at big cypress destiny unbound at nassau 03 as the three king of the mountain oh my god you had to be there moments and this great wood show in retrospect is kind of ho-hum, doesn't do a lot for me. In the moment, the energy that that carried over from that, that first five minutes just lasted through the entire show. Everyone had the time of their life. And and I think that maybe that Greatwood show might be the most attendance-biased show of 1.0 or 2.0. I've got no information on 3.0. But this was really a you-had-to-be-there moment. And I think that's maybe the synopsis of things that were going on other places in the tour as well. I love hearing you talk about this building energy, this this zeitgeist, if you will, the, this idea that everyone kind of had something in the air, but it should be pointed out in a in a positive way that we did not know about Big Cypress yet. If I remember correctly, and if you know better, please correct me, the announcement of Big Cypress, the festival of New Year's Eve in Florida, was on July 23rd at Polaris. So that's these, right. Yeah. So these dates, July 4th, July 12th, it was kind of, it was almost like independent energy, if you will, <laughs> you know, that, that we didn't know that the crowd, the, the energy of the crowd was just building of its own volition. And well, well, how about, once, how about this? Yeah. Uh, after, after the 4th of July show, the band has two days off, uh, the managers and security and everything on those two days off, go down to big Cypress and see the field, see big Cypress for the very first time. In the days after this 4th of July show, and then they spend like the next two weeks negotiating, and then by the time you get to Ohio, they actually announce it. So that's going on as the band is playing. Big Cypress is still up in the air and isn't finalized yet. Do you remember the rumors of the Hawaii New Year's Eve 2000 show? Yeah, but there was an infinite number of rumors back there. The one I really remember was Syracuse. That was going to be playing at some 60,000-person football stadium in Syracuse, New York. Was the one yeah, the that Carrier I Dome. Was. That's right. That's the one that that seemed truest to me at the time. Yeah, it's that would be probably the lowest risk one. Although New Year's Eve, uh, December, late December in Syracuse is not exactly uh, risk free. If anyone has ever been in upstate New York. I'm glad it went the way it went. 
Me too. Uh, well, well, coming back from Great Woods and late July, let's come back to today's show, July 4th, 99. Why do you have attendance bias toward this specific show? Why did you choose it to speak about today? Well, you know, you were just talking about the energy, the energy that really was building up the East Coast hadn't really started yet. Uh, this 99 tour is about to get chaotic and and hectic and and super high energy, but that hasn't started yet. This show is much more intimate. 99 Tour is about to become a dance party. It's about to move from city to city throwing a dance party, but that hasn't happened yet. This is like 50 people around a campfire. This is a, a really sweet, emotional show. And, uh, you know, I talked before about new things going around in the parking lot. There were a lot of very happy, content people on the lawn <laughs> at this show. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a really cool family energy um that that was not replicated the rest of this tour and and this show felt more like lemon wheel than oswego this was much more peaceful than a crazy you know rager that oswego was well let's dig into it uh set one opens with my soul in my mind my soul was played a hundred times in 1999 but i went back and checked it was only played five times that year including at big cypress i think 1997 was the peak of my soul, but it's interesting. It's a perfect opener in that I always picture the band just fully starting together. But when you listen to the recording from this show, everyone comes in one at a time and the song hasn't fully started in earnest until about a minute in. It's not much more than a warm up, but it is entertaining. It's a good way to get started. Yeah. A good way to build some energy, good way for them to, you know, get loose or whatever. And, um, you know, then into a, a really big Yamar. Uh, what's better than a first set outdoor daylight Yamar? I feel like that's like a like a Hall of Fame fish experience to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And this is this is a really cool one too. This is a little bit weird. It gets like spacey. Um, maybe it has a hint of the '99 sound that's to come in the in the week to come. But this is a, a really cool loose version. I like it. I agree. I without looking too far into it, I listened to the set this morning. This Yamar is probably my highlight of set one. I really like where it goes after the song would typically end because Mike and Paige drop out completely at about five minutes. And then there's like an extra jam. And then it goes on for almost seven more minutes. They bring it back to Yamar, but in the end, it's it's a fully closed Yamar, but it brings you in places that in other jams in other years might go on for another 25 minutes. Yeah, and and I feel like they had they had places they wanted to go. Um, you would it was pretty cool. And in, in your notes, you had written, I believe, 10 minute mark as as a big change point. And independently, I had written at 10 25, the crowd starts to go crazy from 10 25 to 11 minutes. You could really hear it in the crowd that they were digging uh, this, this kind of spacey Yamar groove that they had found. Yeah. 
they remember then that it's the first set. So they bring out Farmhouse and it is an old school Farmhouse intro. I was reminded a little bit toward the end that the power of Farmhouse guitar solo could have. These days, it's not quite there. The song, in my opinion, is a little too familiar to have that resonance, unless you're a newer fan and it's the first time you're hearing it. And I like the song, but it just lost its zip. And I think that this version reminded me of it. But the real big meat is the next couple songs when they do Okipa into ACDC Bag, a very old school segue. And, you know, when when I was a young little fish fan and I had someone who had seen five more shows than me and therefore was the expert, somewhere along the line told me that Okipa Ceremony, if they play that, that meant, you know, the that the band had done an Okipa ceremony, that they were kind of in something together and that that was very significant if they played that song. I don't necessarily know if that's true, but when they played Okipa, when I saw Fish, I think they, they played it six times during during my heyday. And five of them are at uh, really pivotal moments, pivotal shows or before um, really legendary jams. So I feel like this is a signifier. This means something. It's not an accident that they played this song. I'd like to agree with you. I really would. It's I see it as kind of reading the tea leaves a bit, but I feel the same way when they open a show with Buried Alive, for example. Exactly. Or, and there's a there's a number of songs that that they play on this tour just in this two weeks that you're talking about from the Fourth of July through Oswego. Listen to this list. They play Okipa. They play Catapult twice. They play Sod again. If I only had a brain. They play Nitrous. I didn't know twice. Iculus and Kong in two weeks. Those are all songs that tell me something is going on. So this was a really special time as far as I'm concerned. I agree. And anyone who disagrees, you could keep that to yourself because I like to keep my little pocket of wonder. You know, however many years later later it is, I like to think that every show can be special. And in its way, you know, even if it's a small segment, every show is special. And if that means they played a song that signifies something larger than what we can articulate, so be it. And I'm happy that Okipod did that because into ACDC Bag, it's a really good version of ACDC Bag. Yeah, this is this is a blast. What's better than you get to hear a big bag in person? You know, in retrospect, do you want to hear some 12-minute ACDC bag that's not on the jam part jam charts? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but to hear it in person, this is a fantastic version. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just a very classic uh ACDC bag jam, and it's great. You you were lucky to be there or, or any of the other 50 times they played a great version of the song, right? You, you described it as though it's unremarkable. But if they played this ACDC bag today, it would be on the jam charts because it's unlike how they play it now. And see, when I hear this version, I hear a song that does not belong in summer 99. This song belongs in summer 97 or summer 98. It's got this song would sound so out of place in Oswego. Uh, and so? in two weeks, the things are that this is a very familiar uh, groove, and that Oswego, there uh, they've reached a point. You know, they're very clearly. If I could take a ten thousand foot view here on this tour, they're very clearly looking for blank spaces to to find new spots to explore. Uh, some of the jams you've talked about: the Fee from Virginia Beach, Camden Shock Dust, Fluffhead from Alpine Valley. The my friend, my friend from Deer Creek. You you've spent a lot of times talking about those shows. Those are very clear attempts to find new ground in familiar places and and to explore and to be psychedelic. And and there was a lot of that going on, especially in the first set of of these jams here. 
Yeah, and to bring it back to Trey's keyboard, I think that was another conscious attempt to create space or to find space, like you said, that it's not always lead crazy guitar. But this ACDC bag is, like you said, it's a familiar groove. To me, it reminds me of early tapes that I had, like shows from 92, 93, 94, where it's a very basic ACDC bag jam. And the only change in it, the only variable is how fast they play it with every go round. And that's what this one does. Trey is pushing things forward with staccato picking. And then by the time it's almost like an airplane, right? It reaches cruising speed at seven minutes, it, but it reaches a new level of intensity every two minutes. It's at top speed by nine minutes and then it peters out. Anyone who's listened to an old show knows what this ACDC bag st- uh, sounds like. Yeah, I know. Th- I I know the exact kind of tempo changes that you're out on there. Yeah, they follow it up with another old song, "The Wedge." I really like "The Wedge," and during the lightning round, I often ask guests for their most controversial fish opinion. Mine changes by the day, but today it's I really like "The Wedge," but is it too repetitive for anyone else? You know, is that an unpopular or controversial opinion that the wedge doesn't really do much for me anymore? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you, you've had you've had like an extra fifteen years to get jaded on some of this stuff that I didn't have. That's so true. I don't know. Wedge still sounds fresh to me. I I jaded. I got jaded on a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about Weekapa Groove here in a little bit. So I'm not above being jaded, but I never got to that point uh, on the wedge. I love the wedge. And the song that I am not jaded on, and I hope you're not either, they follow up the wedge with Vultures, which is a fan favorite. You gotta love Vultures. It's not fully cooked yet. It's still a new song. Even though I think they debuted it in 97, I'll check that. But it's still rare. So I think this is one of those things where they develop it on stage with each new version. Because I think it was around this time that they stopped practicing, like at late 1.0. And there's this... You can tell it's it's a newer version because the lyric of blind me with ambition like a potato to the throat is still there instead of a razor. Uh, there is also another example here, like from Yamar, where there's hints of ambience and dissonance that will come later in 1999, like in about four or five months. Yeah, there, there's definitely a slight 99 feel to this vultures jam even though it's weird to say because i'm not sure prior to this moment if i knew what a vultures jam sounded like i feel like they were changing that song at this point in time it sounded new in the moment and and i do think that they were changing the song kind of 
as they were playing, like you're saying. Yeah, I think it sounded new because it wasn't played that frequently. I first saw it live at It in 2003, and to me, it sounded new then. That this, I, I very specifically remember, I knew what Vultures was, but there was something about this version that, that sounded new and different to me at the time. I think it's toward the end. I think it's around six minutes or so, because it gets kind of chaotic, which I like, because they keep kind of switching off between order and chaos, which is like a microcosm of Summer 99 in That's one right. gem. toward the end of the set with I didn't know and fast enough for you. I did like in I didn't know when Fishman comes up for a vacuum solo and he is introduced as Vajana Fishman. <laughs> and and you know this is act this I didn't know and fast enough for you is is a section that I wanted to talk to to you and I wanted to tell everybody about the most. There was something really cool that happened here. Um and your buddies over at the HF pod I tried to find an old episode where I heard them talk about this but speaking specifically about this section of the show one of those guys said um that when uh, i'm paraphrasing but he says when fish is at the height of their powers you don't see it in the big tentpole gems you see it in the little quiet moments and he's talking about the i didn't know in the in the fast enough for you and that there was something really special going on here Uh, i have very specific memories of them coming up to the microphones for i didn't know and just with the biggest smiles on their faces, they were so happy to be there, and they were so happy to be a part of what of the same thing we were a part of. There was something that happened during this song that I used to remember and I don't remember anymore. Uh, and you can hear Mike laughing at the end of it. He's laughing through through the words at the end because something happened on stage that was really touching and totally unforgettable, and then I forgot it. Um, oh, I was so there, right about to ask. That was my next follow-up question. It, if you are listening to this and you remember what happened during this, I didn't know. Hit me up, man. I I, I want to remember. And then after this, I didn't know. You know, it's, it's it's a really touching moment. They they had all of our attention, and then they fast enough for you. And I had never thought about this song before. I looked it up. I had never seen it before. You know, I probably never put much thought into it, and I was blown away. Uh, they had my full attention. I remember at one point in the in the guitar uh, solo. I kind of snap out of it and I look around and I take stock of everything around me and everyone was paying 100% attention. You think maybe on a slow song like this, maybe some people are talking, maybe people are running to the bathroom. No, 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 no. There was something about out of, I didn't know into this fast enough for you. They had us hooked and, and this was beautiful to hear live. It sounds beautiful to me listening to it 20 years later. Thank you. 
I don't know if that comes through to someone who wasn't there on the tape or if this is just an attendance bias. It came through to me at about two minutes with Paige's piano harmonies. I thought it was played beautifully. This was this was really, really touching. Uh, I, I don't know what to say, but how often do, do you remember something so clearly from 23 years ago? I was blown away by not just the music and not just the energy from the band, but just the way the crowd was fully captivated on this slow, quiet song. And going back to what I was saying before, that's how it is, is at the height of their power. When when you, you're just jaw-dropped at this quiet, emotional little moment, not the big, huge ACDC bags. Which is interesting because the next song, which closes the set, is David Bowie, where if you just saw this set list on paper, you would think that's where the big power comes from. But to me, this was it was a good David Bowie. One of my notes, though, is that this could be any Bowie from 1997 to 2000. The jam builds a bit. It calms down. Trey keeps the pace, and there's heavy tone, heavy guitar tone. You could hear the crowd get excited. They react with the waves of cheers at the appropriate place, but it doesn't it doesn't stick in the memory in the way that you said fast enough for you does. You know, I've got two moments in this show that just don't quite live up to how great everything else is. And this David Bowie, the lead up brings me right there. And then it's like, there's not even really guitar solo. It's like the moment I feel like, okay, now the guitar solo should kick in is when Trey ends the song. So I'm with you. This, this, this is missing a little something for me. Although what it has is Fishman. I wrote Fishman is putting on a clinic. And on these audience recordings, it's not always so easy to hear his uh, delicacy, the way that he plays his nuance. But if you really focus your ear back in on him, this Bowie, that makes it a highlight if that's your thing. Well, Fishman's about to have about the best uh, 60 minutes that I think, uh, in my opinion, he's ever had. So I don't hear him on the Bowie, but I'm about to hear him a whole bunch. Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways. If you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use. If you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it. Or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. Well, let's get into that 60 minutes at least. Set two opens with Ghost. And my first thought was a second set Ghost opener in the late 90s. Count me in. It's fast. Yeah, it, Ghost is has slowed down quite a bit uh, over the years. You know, that's not news to anyone. I wrote, bring back fast ghost, <laughs> but the jam starts about five and a half minutes in and it's propulsive. Like normally they all back off. They kind of start from nothing to build from there, but this time they didn't. Mike gets really, uh, his bass at least gets very high up to follow Trey's melody and they really go around and everyone gets their moment to shine to your point about Fishman being the centerpiece in the beginning of this, uh, this set Fishman is in love with his China symbol. 
And it's really causing a ruckus in the best way toward the end of this track around 12 minutes uh, where they're starting to tease actually what's the use. And and you know, I've got 1210 written on here. So you say about 12 minutes. I know the exact symbol uh, moments you're talking about. I'm, I'm going to try not to talk for the next hour about this ghost slave, <laughs> but I got, I've, I've got a couple thoughts. You know, we, we talked about artistry before and, and this is really the moment I was talking about. I've, I've got a lot of thoughts on this ghost. I thought I knew exactly what I was going to say. All I needed to do was I was going to just write down some timestamps and boom, it was going to be done. And in the process of writing down these timestamps, I, I had these waves in the, in the ghost jam that I've just been thinking about as waves in my mind for 20 years. And I was just going to talk about them. I knew what to say and writing down the timestamps. I realized these are set intervals, right? There's like 34 seconds in between each one of these waves. I've been calling it a wave and a wave should have like a determined interval, but I never thought to listen to this jam with a stopwatch and try to time it out. The process of trying to put all this into words and, and writing down these timestamps, I've actually realized that, I think I might be wrong about something that happened in this jam that I've listened to a thousand times and that I thought I understood perfectly. I think I need to go back and listen to 34 seconds before this and 34 seconds before that and, and follow this and see where it goes afterwards. And I was just really struck that, that after 20 years of considering this, now I'm reconsidering it. I'm thinking maybe I've been wrong. I've got a new enthusiasm. I want to listen to it again. I've got like a plan of attack and how I'm going to listen to it again. And that's really what I was getting at, that I had a moment thinking about this ghost jam that I'm just really appreciative that I've got this piece of artwork in my pocket that I can just go to anytime I want. It's really cool. I don't have much to say about the jam other than I've been in love with this thing for 20 something years and uh, it means a lot to me. And, and it's super cool that I get to reimagine it now going forward. And also the jam itself is very good that it, that everyone gets their, their piece. Everyone get no, there's no specific star in it that it's quite democratic to use uh, that word. But toward the end was my favorite part is they segue right into slave to the traffic light, but it's not a stop ghost start slave. It's played like bits and pieces, puzzle pieces of slave are played toward the end of ghost until it's actually become, it actually becomes the song slave to the traffic light proper uh, for anyone listening or who wants to listen to this show, or even just this set or this part of the show. Don't just start at Slave to the Traffic Light. Listen all the way through Ghost and let it flow. Don't skip any tracks to hear this segue. It's very, very beautiful. You know, I've got uh, about a 12-minute timestamp here on the Ghost where kind of the transition starts right around 12 minutes. 
through two minutes of, of the slave that I think is just perfect. You said it right, Democratic. There's not one person that is uh, more noticeable. They're making just a, a hive mind, full sound. And and I want to talk about this transition. I didn't have much smart to say about it, but your guest, Jen, who came on to talk about Deer Creek a couple months back, she talked about the 99 Deer Creek show. I'm going to uh, steal a quote she used. So she says, there's no hesitation between the two pieces of music. They melt into each other. They flow together perfectly. Now, she's talking about my friend, my friend into my left toe. But that works perfectly for the ghost and the slave. They melt into each other. They flow together perfectly. There's no hesitation between the two musics. I don't really know where one starts and one ends. And it, And on top of all that, the music is beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it too. I heard my first hint of slave to the traffic light at about 11 minutes and 50 seconds of the recording of ghost that's on fish.in because I heard some of the chords that page is playing. I don't know that he's playing slave to the traffic light consciously. It just might be the same chord that's used at that part of the jam. And then also somewhere in slave. But to me, that's where my brain made the connection. I went back to re-listen to it. But the beginning notes of Slave to the Traffic Light, I wrote, it's an amazing segue. There's no stop in playing at all. He begins, Trey does, begins the chords to Slave, and all of a sudden we're in it. It's very deliberate because they slow down once everyone realizes we're playing Slave to the Traffic Light now. It's very controlled. It's uh, more full in a way. There's a lot of building in the jam as there typically is. But by the time they get to the middle or middle end, of this track, like by seven and a half minutes, it's not exactly power chords, but heavily sustained notes. And the band just kind of pokes around above the surface. And we end with a classic, what I would consider a live one peak of Slave to the Traffic Light, where you say, I am in the right place at the right time. There's no better concert experience to ever be had. This is the stuff in capital letters.
Yeah, yeah. I didn't have words to say it, but yes, this is the reason you go to see Fish to see this three-minute guitar solo. The the seven or so minutes before the guitar solo, like you said, is real democratic. It's all four of them combining to make one sound. And then at about the 820 mark, Trey's guitar just rises above everything else. And I mean, I'm not a huge guitar solo guy. I was I was more of a of a groove guy, but this is my guitar solo. I I I know every inch of it. I think every decision he makes in it is perfect. No notes. I love this solo. I love it. I love it. I love it. And they need a cool down. I would think we all do, right? I mean, you were the Oof. one who was there. Everyone must have been just zonked out of their mind in the best way possible, right? After the slave to the traffic light. Yeah, this was. I, I was in a pretty emotional place. I think a lot of people were just standing there. They're, they're, they weren't cheering. They weren't dancing. I think a lot of people were just kind of standing there. So we need something to move to, or at least to center our minds. And they play hoarse and silent in the morning. But even something as typical and as expected or as rote as hoarse silent is not usual at this show. I know I have something to say about it, but I know you have a lot to say about it. So I'll let you take the reins here. I wanted to come here and tell you guys how much I love this fast enough for you. And I want to tell you how much I love this ghost and the slave. I'm going to tell you in a few minutes how much I love this Mike song. I want to tell you guys how much Trey loved this silent in the morning. If you listen to this last 30 seconds, Trey loses his mind. I don't know. I don't know where he is. He's he's not present. Something inside Trey just loses its mind for 30 seconds and absolutely goes off at the end of Silent in the Morning. And there's a moment that I remember pretty well of the song has just ended. Trey is like holding on to this note and he's facing Mike and they're laughing at each other. And it was clear as day to me, the conversation they were having. I couldn't read lips, but I promise you. The, the paraphrase of the conversation is Trey saying, oh, my God, I love playing silent in the morning. I just want to keep playing silent in the morning. Mike is laughing at him. Trey, we can't play silent in the morning again. That'd be ridiculous. And Trey is just saying, but I want to play silent in the morning. <laughs> you can you can hear it in his guitar. Trey like surprised himself with his solo and woke up to find out the, that the solo was over. And he was like disappointed. He wanted to play it again. And Mike said, no, I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But this was a really special moment. I'm telling you. Trey loved this silent in the morning. I think the silent in the morning should be on the jam chart. I think it should be yellow. I think the description should just say hose in capital letters with an <laughs> explanation point. Uh, I think everyone should take 30 seconds and listen just to the end of this and, and listen to how tr happy Trey's guitar is. You can hear it. You said it. You said it. I had some notes, but you pretty much you've already nailed it. To follow up silent in the morning, they played What's the Use, which I think is the debut. Right? That's the first time they've ever played it live? That is, that is the first time anyone's ever heard it, and it I totally missed it, man. 
I did not get it in the moment. I'm not sure that I ever truly got it, but in the moment I was standing there waiting for something to happen. And then the song ended and I was just like, oh, that was the thing. I was waiting for something to happen while I was waiting. The thing happened and I totally missed it. <laughs> uh, your buddy, Steve, um, when he talked about this, he said that he's gone on to love what's the use. But in the moment, he was just bewildered. He didn't know what was going on either. I think there was a lot of confusion at this song uh, uh, the first time you heard it. And I was really confused. I didn't know it was a song. Yeah, it sounds like it. Even today, I mean, now we know what to expect. They played it so frequently, especially back in, I think, 2013 to 2016. They really brought it back, and the crowd became very respectful of it, where we as a group knew where to be quiet. We knew where to cheer. We knew when it was time to listen. But it sounds just kind of like a mushrooming jam for about seven minutes. At this point, now it's they play it for like 12 minutes. It's a lot longer. They really squeeze out the silence in a good way. But at the time, I don't know if I would know what to what to expect or how to react either. If at the very beginning of the song, someone had just whispered to me, this is a song. It's called What's a Use. It's going to be like seven minutes long. Like I probably would have had a totally different interpretation, but I was very, you know, uh, my mind wasn't working great at the moment. And I was just confused what was going on. Yeah, understandably. And to bring it back up energy wise, they start off with Wilson, which is quite a contrast to the last couple of songs. And it's pretty fun to have Wilson on the jam charts. Uh, it sounds like a, what if they jammed on Wilson? And the connection I hear is Trey was kind of soloing over the end of Silence in the Morning like you were just talking about. And he kind of didn't care when the composed part actually ended. So they're on it. And then Trey just keeps going with this like Black Sabbath kind of heavy metal thing that I was just totally stricken by. I loved it. They play Wilson four times this tour, and 
Trey gets confused every single time. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. And there's multiple times in this Wilson that I think he's confused. I think at the very beginning, he already forgets what song they're playing. And then obviously they go on and he, he forgets the uh, which which lyric goes in which place, which he does every single time they play this song, this entire tour. Um, I don't know what got into Trey. I, I thought he knows how Wilson goes, but apparently not. This Wilson, they take this, they take it into this heavy metal place, and uh, you know, Trey loses his way and he comes in at the wrong time, and it actually winds up being a really powerful moment at the end when he comes in with the wham boom ba 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 ba. Uh, the 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 crowd goes absolutely crazy. This was a mistake that maybe in 2.0 would be a downer and maybe would turn the energy of the show the wrong way, and this somehow managed to turn the energy up even more. And so that's just, when things are going well, a flub can maybe be a good thing. When things are going bad, a flub can turn things the wrong way to quit. Perfectly said, 100%. And we're now in the fourth quarter. We're toward the end, and they close up the whole set with Mike's Sleeping Monkey and Weekapog. And I happen to think that 1999 is a great year for Mike's song. A lazy listener might say that nothing happens in this version of Mike's song, but it's really nine minutes of groove with Paige's organ leading the way, which is right on point for 1999. Yeah, they... They arrive in this jam like at two fifteen. As soon as the as soon as the the song ends and the jam begins, they arrive at a finished product. They arrive at a full sound, and I think that they kind of uh, uh, realize that they're at a finished product, and they just stay right there. There's they do a, a shift at four twenty. Uh, Trey kind of starts to solo a little bit. He's got this this very mellow electric solo over top of the groove. Then at six minutes, he dives back down and he he. He joins the groove. He's not soloing anymore. He's just become a part of the groove, and it goes back into that democratic sound that you were talking about before. Just this this uh, this wall of sound.
And then at 740, he kind of rises back out of that groove to do another quick little uh, guitar solo. And man, this this seven minute jam is is maybe my favorite fish ever. Just a couple of the words I wrote down to try to describe it. Pleasing, appealing, satisfying, warm blanket. It's like this zig it's like this jam always existed. I don't know if there's like a frequency or if or or if there's a tempo or a timing about this that is just like naturally appealing but i don't know this like i can feel this jam in my bone marrow they they get to a groove and they just stay there for seven minutes and i absolutely love it love it love it love it this is perfect dance music to me perfect how did you love the segue into sleeping monkey that comes i'll be honest with you uh I don't have contemporaneous memories after really the Wilson. I remember the Wilson happening. I don't remember this, Mike's. I'd love to tell you. I loved it in the moment. Um, I could tell you I was probably pretty disappointed at the Sleeping Monkey. I was probably looking to dance a little bit more after that last seven minutes. Um, but then we get, uh, I said before, I've grown jaded about Weekapog over the years. But in the moment, you know, this was like my 25th show or something. I would have been going crazy. This is super high energy. This has like a number of different jams. Um, this was a really great Weekapog, and I'm sure I absolutely loved it. It closes the second set. They come back on for two encores, by the way. First is Karini, which is like a four-minute Karini. Like I've never heard, I've never heard those words. Four minutes. It sounds kind of laid back. Which anyone listening, if all you're familiar with is Karini from 2.0 on, give this a listen. It's very perfunctory. Well, you know, this is uh, they did a double encore two nights in a row because the night before they did an encore, and then they had Paige's dad come out for a second encore. And so I don't know how many times they did double encore back to back nights, but this is a second in a row of back-to-back encores and there's a moment uh during the meat stick i want to pull up this quote because trey says something that i i haven't cried yet i thought maybe i was going to cry during this and if i could just get through this last part that would mean i I got through this whole podcast without crying um and i'm gonna i'm gonna look out i don't have the quote right here in front of me but i'm gonna try to do it just by just by memory he says you know we really appreciate you having you guys not just as our audience, but as our friends. And he has this little stumble over friends. His voice is weak and tired. It's been a long day. And uh, just the way he says it, that that he appreciates having us as not just our uh, the audience, but as our f- friends, it means so much to me. I don't listen to this show without listening to that part. And it's just one of the things that really, really made this show special was 
You know, I know 20 years later that I'm not friends with Trey, but in that <laughs> moment, he meant it, man. He meant it. That was a special show and we shared it together and we were friends that day. And I was friends with everyone that was there. And I was friends with Paige and Trey and Mike uh, and the other one and Brad Sands and all, we were all friends that day. And it might not be true anymore, but it was definitely true on 7499. So after that neat stick and Trey's beautiful speech, they go off stage and come back on. Let us not forget it's July 4th. So of course they do the acapella version of the star spangled banner. And so you say, yeah, this Karini is just a short four minute Karini. You know, they've got a lot going on. They're about to do a costume change. They, I think Fishman comes out wearing a speedo. They're going to yeah, do G string, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's fireworks. They've got so much going through their minds. So I, I feel like that Karini was really just an afterthought. They, they didn't put much heart into it. I think they had a lot going on. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on and breaking down another show from that early part of July 99. And probably, one, I mean, it's hard to pick, right? You said way earlier in our conversation, what's the point of ranking them? It's just another piece of the puzzle of these first two weeks of the summer 99 tour. So when you suggested this one, I said to myself, Oh, another, like another one from that same week. I feel like I'm going to be done with these two weeks soon enough, but every show matters in this section of this tour. So I'm really, I'm really glad that you brought another piece to the whole of this becoming in my mind, at least legendary part of Fish's career, you know, legendary or not super, certainly important in the evolution of fish and i think you're certainly right on these two weeks the fourth of july through oswego something was changing in the crowd something was changing with the band and something was changing in the relationship between the crowd and the band and this was really important uh, i don't think everyone anyone will ever really know what happened i think there are some lost memories in there but uh it's cool to think about man since today's conversation was focused almost exclusively on July 4th, 1999, we didn't really dig too deep into fish history, so there's not a very big fact check today, but there are a few things that I want to make sure we got right. Attendance bias fact check. The Bomb Factory in Dallas is still alive and well, although it was closed from 1997 to 2015. In 2015, it opened under new management, but then in 2021, it was renamed simply The Factory. Its capacity is up to 4,300, depending on the setup of the show. Was Vultures a new song in 1999? Well, it debuted in June 13, 1997 in Dublin, and its performance here at Lakewood was its 14th time being played live. So, maybe? When Brad mentioned attendance by his guest, Jen, he is talking about Jen Moore, who is on the episode that was published on October 9th, and she spoke about set one from Deer Creek on July 25th, 1999. And that's it for the fact check, and that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Brad G. for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's show. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by visiting www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias and donating anything you can. You can also reach out on social media. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.